0: Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined by Eric Calderwood, an Associate Professor of Literature at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, to talk about the role Spanish colonialism played in making Al-Andalus central to Moroccan identity today, as discussed in his recent book, Colonial Al-Andalus, Spain and the Making of Modern Moroccan Culture. What follows is an edited version of a larger conversation that I had with Eric, on Zoom. So Eric, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: I just want to mention before we begin that I'd like to thank one of our listeners, David Stenner, for suggesting this episode. We're always interested in what aspects of Iberian history listeners would like to know more about. So if you have a suggestion, please let us know using the contact form at historiaspodcast.org. Today, if our subject is going to be this idea of Al-Andalus, could you start out by just answering that basic question for us of what is Al-Andalus?
1: Yeah, well, we're going to be uh, getting to the kind of deeper answer to that throughout the conversation. But the the simple and quick one is Al-Andalus. Uh, when I use that term, refers to medieval Muslim Iberia. So. Large parts of the Iberian Peninsula, today's Spain and Portugal, were under Muslim control uh, from 711 until 1492, and Al-Andalus is the Arabic name to refer to that Muslim uh, polity in the the Iberian Peninsula.
0: And so if we're also going to be talking about how Al-Andalus became an important part of Moroccan identity today, perhaps we should start with that present how do Moroccans see a connection with Al-Andalus today, and why is that important for their identity?
1: Well, to answer that question, I think I should say something brief about how I came to this book. Um, I actually, this book actually started as a book about Al-Andalus proper. That is, it was originally a medieval book. Uh, I went to uh, to Morocco as a graduate student to do research on 15th century history. And while I was there, I started to encounter this idea that I found really fascinating. And it was this idea that modern Moroccan culture descends directly from El Andalus. Uh, the music of, of Morocco, the architecture of Morocco, the Moroccan way of talking, of dressing. All around me as I was working in Morocco for the first time, I started to encounter this idea both in Tour sites I was visiting, history books I was reading, and people I was talking with, that modern Moroccan culture is in some sense an extension of El Andalus. Mm-hmm. And I started to wonder like, what's the deal with that? Uh, like, where did that idea come from? When did people start thinking that? When did they start talking about al Andalus in that way? Is that a kind of cha- unbroken chain of thinking about El Andalus since the medieval period? Or is that actually a much more recent way of talking about Morocco and the Andalusi past. And just to give you a sense of how powerful this idea of Morocco's Andalusi identity is, it's actually inscribed in the preamble of the Moroccan constitution. Uh, and so this is an idea that has really significant political and cultural weight behind it. Uh, and, I was, and I sort of started off by trying to figure out where did this idea come from?
0: You argue in your book that this perceived link between Morocco and Al Andalus is a fairly recent construct a product of the colonial period, but that there were older links as well. What were these links and why can't we simply draw a straight line between them and the contemporary idea of Al-Andalus in Morocco?
1: Yeah, so the book's argument is basically that Morocco's Andalusi identity, as we know it today, is not in fact a medieval legacy, but is instead a much more recent phenomenon, one that emerges from the colonial encounter between Spain and Morocco in the 19th and 20th centuries. And what I'm trying to say there is not that Moroccans had never thought about Al-Andalus before the 19th century, or that Spain somehow invented the idea that there was a connection between Spain and North Africa, but rather that Spain changed the ways that Moroccans talked about Andalus and understood their relationship to it. And the book was trying to track what those changes are. And so um, put simply, and, and I, you know, I think we could fill in more details as we go along, I think uh, today when people talk about the Andalusia identity in Morocco, it's predominantly um, connected to a series of cultural practices that are imagined to have descended directly from medieval Muslim Iberia, practices such as music, architecture, um, sometimes in a more extended sense, ways of practicing Islam, Um, and and I'm saying that this kind of cultural narrative of Andalusiness is what was created by Spain, and on top of that, it became kind of nationalized, so it became not just a kind of pan-Arab or pan-Muslim thing, but a specifically Moroccan cultural narrative. And what I'm saying in the book is that before the 19th century, there, is, there are a lot of ideas about Al-Andalus in Morocco, and I start to try to trace them, but that they're not, first of all, they're not really nationalized. It's not imagined as a Moroccan national identity. It's part of a larger story. And that larger story is predominantly one that's understood in religious terms. That is to say, Al-Andalus is predominantly understood as part of a longstanding struggle between Christianity and Islam. And Morocco understands itself as kind of at the the frontier of that struggle, but it's not imagined as a kind of national identity grounded in a series of cultural practices.
0: Can you tell us um, a bit more about this relationship you mentioned between Morocco and Al-Andalus before uh, the nationalism of the colonial period? How was this relationship uh, construed before the 19th century?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's important to clarify uh, for the book and for people who are just encountering this story for the first time, that there is actually a really long history of human and cultural exchange between the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa, most significantly for the story that I'm telling here. Uh, in the period between, uh, say, 1492, so roughly the fall of the last Muslim kingdom, in the Iberian peninsula to the beginning of the 17th century a series of waves of mass migrations of andalusis both Muslim and Jewish made their way from the northern shore of the Strait of Gibraltar to the southern shore. And so there was this kind of massive migration of this large population from what is today Spain to what is today Morocco. And that had a number of implications in Moroccan society. First of all, uh, the Andalusian community created a kind of socio-cultural elite, one that often married amongst itself and uh, sort of held up their Andalusian heritage as a badge of, of prestige. Uh, almost in the way that one might kind of brag about being descended from the pilgrims today. It's a very rough analogy, but, but you know, there was, a kind of, there was a kind of prestige of origins attached to it. So there's a genealogical element. And then it's recalled as a moment of religious loss, as a moment in which a land of Muslim control was lost uh, to a Christian power. And it was understood very much in those religious terms. And so what I'm saying in the book is a little bit like, how did al Andalus as this sign of genealogical prestige and religious conflict become instead, this story of national identity grounded in largely secular cultural practices?
0: So we're gonna take a short pause here and then when we come back, we'll look at uh, what some, some of those connections were with colonial Spain and how this idea of al Andalus and Morocco started to evolve. You mentioned that one of the arguments of your book is that this modern conception of Al Andalus is, at least in part, a product of Spanish colonial thinking. So, when did Spaniards start to see this connection between Al Andalus in Morocco and Spain, and why was that?
1: So, it's a process that really took off in the 19th century, um, and it was largely kind of intertwined with the rise of Spanish colonialism in Morocco in the 19th century. So during this period, uh, Spanish thinkers started to revive the memory of Andalus and use it to justify Spain's colonial projects in North Africa. And the logic here was sort of like, no, no, we're not colonizing North Africa. It's just, North Africa was always part of us. It's, it's Andalus. And so it it was a kind of rhetorical switch that meant to kind of naturalize Spain's claims on on North Africa during a moment in which several different European powers were competing for a presence there. And this was particularly key during the Spanish-Moroccan War of 1860 to 1862, well, 1859 to 1860, and then the Spanish army remained in Morocco until 1862. And this war was really the kind of starting off point of Spanish colonialism in Morocco. Um, And it was really also a sort of um, rediscovery of Morocco for a lot of Spanish intellectuals. And most famously, like one one of the prime examples I discuss in my book is this guy, Pedro Antonio de Alarcón, who uh, was an Andalusian writer. He was from Granada, a really significant journalist, public figure, novelist. Uh, who wrote a really famous account of this war. Um, and we can we can talk a bit more about that account if you'd like.
0: Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask you more about him because I thought that was the most fun p- parts of your book. He had a uh, very colorful life. So could you tell us a little more about him and how he specifically saw this relationship between Spain and Morocco?
1: Yeah, so uh, Alourcon, uh went... He actually volunteered in the Spanish army and, and went on this campaign in, uh, in, in Morocco. Uh, in, Sp- in Spanish, this is referred to as the Guerra de África, the War of Africa. Uh, and in, in, in Arabic, it's referred to as the War of Tetuan. So you get the sense that Tetuan was the main city in northern Morocco where it took place. And so you get the sense that they're very competing um, imaginaries for what this war was about. I mean, I think uh, in part, I,
0: I liked, uh, in your book, how you said it was a very grandiose, they, you know, it's a tiny part of Morocco, they call it the War of Africa. Was...
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think in part it's because in, in, the, in the 19th century, Africa, even though today we might uh, its primary association might be with sub-Saharan Africa, it was a kind of uh, synonym for Morocco in 19th century Spanish vocab. But at the same time, I think it was meant to stand in, it was, meant, it was imagined as the beginning of a kind of vast Spanish colonization of Africa. Um, and so you have in this period in the 19th century in which the kind of Spanish colonies in the Americas are, are, are in decline, this uh, moment of, of a colonial pivot in which Spain is starting to think about new colonial projects in Africa. And one of the really interesting kind of discursive features Uh, One of the ways in which the Spanish talked about this was really by taking advantage of something that had long been seen as a weakness in Spain. There was this idea that, you know, Africa begins in the Pyrenees, which was a kind of very famous 19th century French quip, which was meant to point to the backwardness of 19th century Spain and suggesting that it had some relationship to Spain's African or Semitic heritage going back to Al-Andalus. And Spain kind of took that, which had been a, a sort of point of criticism or even ridicule from other European writers and turned it into a, s- a source of strength. So there's a kind of rhetorical jujitsu here where they say, oh, yes, we, indeed, you say Africa begins in the P- Pyrenees. Indeed, we are African and therefore it makes sense for us to be the primary colonizers of Africa. Mm-hmm. So much so that they, you know, a kind of recurring motif that you see throughout the history of Spanish colonialism, uh, is that it's not actually a colonialism at all, unlike French and British colonialism, but rather a restoration of a sort of historical brotherhood uh, that has existed between Spain and North Africa since the medieval period. And so Cohn was really kind of one of the first people who uh, tried to mobilize this idea that Morocco was an extension of medieval Iberia and therefore naturally, and I put naturally in quotation marks, naturally part of Spanish culture and the Spanish territory. And in order to do that, he very specifically uh, relied on his own identity as a Grenadin. Uh, someone who was born in Granada and he kind of was very interested in Granada's Muslim heritage. And his whole uh, diary about this war, which became a huge bestseller in, in, in Spain, uh, the basic thesis is Tetuan, this Moroccan city, is Granada, that like the two are basically interchangeable and part of the same cultural narrative. And for that reason, Alarcon, as a Granadan, is the best person to explain Tetuan to a Spanish audience. And so this move in which uh, Morocco gets folded into a larger narrative of Iberian culture through El Andalus became a really significant, almost the central pillar of Spanish colonial discourse in Morocco. And that's something that that kind of takes off in this moment in the 19th century.
0: So I understand that, you know, according to your book, as we move into the late 19th and early 20th centuries, so um, after this war, this idea of a connection between Al-Andalus and Spain became even more prevalent. So how did the writers of that period use this idea of Al-Andalus to support the Spanish nationalist and imperialist movements of that time?
1: Yeah, so, you know, as I was saying, with Alarcón in the middle of the 19th century, you do have what I would describe as the kind of the seeds kind of early suggestions of what Spanish colonialism will eventually look like in the sense that Alarcón is suggesting that Tetuan and Granada are the same, that Moroccans and Spaniards share a common cultural and racial background, but really this discourse becomes much more specific and developed and has a kind of much more robust historical grounding and specificity as you go into the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And really, the people driving that conversation are largely intellectuals based, like Alarcón, in southern Spain, in, in what is today the region known as Andalusia. Uh, sorry, I, 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 I assume most of your, your listeners know Andalusia, but in case there are any kind of non-Spanish history people listening. And, sure. and really, the, the, key, the key point here is that for these thinkers in the early 20th century in Andalusia, they're trying to conflate three things that really should be kept separate. Andalusia, the southern region, Al-Andalus, medieval Muslim Iberia and Morocco. And so the kind of key rhetorical claim is that these three things are united in space and time. And Andalusia, today's region in southern Spain, is has kind of emerged as the natural leader of this cultural unit which brings together uh, things as diverse as medieval Cordoba, modern Morocco, and say, modern Seville. And so uh, the key example here would be someone like Blas Infante, uh, who today is celebrated as the sort of father figure of what is called Andalusismo, sometimes called Andalusian nationalism. And his, uh, you know, I mean, I think Andalusismo is, is one of those peripheral nationalisms that emerges in 19th century Spain, but has gotten a lot less attention than more famous cases, like in Ca- like the example of Catalan nationalism or Basque nationalism. And Blas Infante actually really imagined Andalusian identity in dialogue with, and in some sense, as a rejection of Catalan nationalism. And so uh, part of this debate about what Andalusia is, and what its role in Spain and Morocco is also a debate about Uh, responding to the emergence of Catalan nationalism.
0: Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Blas Infante's ideas about Andalusian nationalism? How did he seek to contrast it from these other regional nationalisms uh, like Catalan nationalism, and use this idea of Al Andalus to do so?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, Blas Infante detected, and I should say rightly, Um, a a sort of racist undertone in um, the kind of classic late 19th and early 20th century foundational texts of Catalan nationalism. And in particular in the book, I kind of explore the dialogue between his work and the work of Prat de la Riba, Enrique Prat de la Riba, who's like an important uh, formulator of Catalan nationalist thought at the turn of the the 20th century. And really, um, you know, the kind of the afterlife of this argument you still see with us today. I'm going to kind of start with the present and and move to the past. Like a classic thing you hear is like when you go to Barcelona, it's like, oh, it's like the most European of Spanish cities or like Barcelona. It's it's almost like Paris. It's more like France than it is like Spain. Mm -hmm. These are these casual things that people... Uh, internalized when they travel as tourists to Barcelona. And in fact, their ideas that have a history that goes back to the 19th century. I think uh, Catalan nationalism uh, constructed its identity very much as a European identity that rejected Spain's Semitic past, uh, Muslim and Jewish. And so Prat de la, de la Riba is very uh, aggressive about saying that Catalans, their architecture is the Gothic, it's not the Alhambra you know he 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 makes these statements to suggest like no no our cultural map is oriented across the Pyrenees it's not oriented south of the mediterranean mm-hmm. and and blas infante the andalusian thinker i was i was talking about he picks up on this and he sort of says like no like our andalusia as a political project and spain because he thought that andalusia should be the kind of leading region of spain's uh, spain's uh, political identity should not be oriented Uh, towards Europe. Instead, we should embrace and orient ourselves to our Semitic and African heritage. Uh, And so Blas Infante was a huge champion of Andalusia's Muslim past, of the history of al Andalus, and he imagined modern-day Andalusian nationalism to be a revival of that past, like part of its cultural afterlife. Mm -hmm. And as part of that claim, he sort of said, well, as we are the leaders of the, the Andalusian Uh, cultural heritage, we should also be the leaders of Spanish colonialism in Morocco, because Morocco, after all, is part of the heritage of Andalus. And so this argument that had basically had to do with which of Spain's cultural elements should dominate our kind of understanding of our identity gets wrapped up both in the argument between Andalusia and Catalonia and in the argument about how Spain should relate
0: itself to Morocco. Uh, So we're going to take another pause and then we're going to look at the later 20th century and how the Franco regime uh, took up this idea of Al-Andalus as well. we move into the Franco period, it's a bit ironic because Blas Infante was actually killed by Falangists at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. And yet you argue in your book, Eric, that very soon uh, afterwards, the Franco regime began using some of his ideas to drum up Moroccan support for the war. Uh, so how did this come about? How is this possible?
1: Yeah, I think that this is one of the trickiest parts of the story and it really um, kind of uh, bristles against or, or kind of grates against some of our very common assumptions about the Spanish Civil War and what happens afterwards. Um, today, Blas Infante, as I said, is remembered as this father of Andalusian nationalism and Andalusismo is very much imagined as a regional identity that was rooted in the, in the, Republic, in the Republic and before and a rooted out by the Franco regime. And so there's a kind of assumed enmity between the Franco regime and Andalusismo. Mm-hmm. And more broadly, I think, you know, if I can make a kind of bolder claim, I think we've sort of understood the Spanish Civil War to be this sort of rupture, this dividing line that separates two irreconcilable views of Spain. Uh, on the one hand, you have the Republicans who advocate for a kind of pluralistic and tolerant multicultural Spain. On the other hand, you have the Francoists who advocate for a kind of monocultural Catholic imperial Spain. Um, and this was the sort of tradition of understanding the Spanish Civil War that I was brought up in. That was kind of like my, that, you know, obviously there's a lot of nuances there, but in general, people didn't see a lot of space in between those two sides. And, you know, Blasinfante's career, I think, is an interesting place to start undoing some of those assumptions, mm-hmm. because although it is true that Blasinfante himself was, was assassinated by, uh, by uh, rebel forces in the first months of the Spanish Civil War, his ideas long sur- uh, survived him and went on to have a really significant afterlife during the Francoist period. And so people kind of assume that Infante's ideas went underground during the Franco period and then kind of reemerged as a process of the democratic transition. And I'm saying, no, actually, Infante's ideas were taken up by many different uh, Francoists, particularly in Morocco, and turned the kind of, into the kind of main tropes of the justification of Spanish colonialism under, uh, under the Franco regime. And so, if anything, I would say that Blas Infante's ideas helped to plant the seeds for the discourses of colonialism under the Franco regime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So could you tell us a little more about that? Um, How did Franco use the ideas of Blas Infante uh, and others as part of his project of National Catholicism?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so I'd say that that is probably the the real nitty gritty of the book. And so there's there, there uh-huh. I go into for someone who's interested in that. I you know maybe I can give a little shout out and like, hey, there's a there's a lot in there in in the book for people who want to know more specific cases. But very broadly, I can say, um, you know, it's important to remember that about eighty thousand Moroccan soldiers fought in Franco's army during the Spanish Civil War. And as part of the really massive recruitment effort. Uh, to get Moroccans to fight in the, in, the Spa- in the Spanish Civil War, Franco kind of embarked on this massive propaganda ca- campaign in Morocco, trying to cast himself as a friend of Al-Andalus, a friend of the Andalusi heritage, a friend of Morocco, insofar as Morocco is an extension of Al-Andalus, and more broadly, a friend of Islam in the Muslim world. As part of this kind of massive propaganda effort uh, to reach out to Moroccans, Franco granted really unprecedented freedoms to the Moroccan nationalist movement, which was already underway in Morocco. And this included the legalization of some of Morocco's first nationalist parties, and also not only the legalization, but also the active financing of several different prominent Moroccan newspapers of a nationalist orientation. And so... Franco, as part of his efforts to reach out to Moroccans, was very actively cultivating these relationships with Moroccan elites and, and allowing, and even in some cases funding, what would go on to be really crucial institutions of the Moroccan nationalist movement. And really the kind of central theme of that reach out was that, first of all, Moroccans should fight with Franco because Franco is involved it's not a fight between uh, Republicans and, and rebels in, or, or nationalists, as he called them. Rather, this is part of the trans-historical uh, combat between people of faith and people without faith. And so Franco would try to cast the Spanish Civil War as a battle that Muslims and Christians should band together against what he would call the kind of godless communists. Once again, in, in rigorous air quotes, uh, that was that was how Francoists in, in their propaganda would refer to, to the Republicans. And so, in this moment, in the in the mid 1930s, sorry, to come back to your your question, these ideas about uh, the afterlife of in and Morocco, Spain. Blas Infante's insistence that Spain should orient itself toward Morocco by emphasizing its Andalusian heritage, uh, and this idea that there was a natural cultural affinity between Spaniards and Moroccans, became really instrumental in the Francoist imaginary, and were kind of central to Frank, the Franco regime's efforts to reach out first to Moroccan soldiers during the Spanish Civil War, and then to Moroccan cultural elites through the 30s, 40s, and into the 1950s.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about how he used religion to try and make that connection?
1: Yeah. So I think this is one of the elements of the book that's gotten, you know, maybe raised the most the, the most eyebrows in Spain. Uh, soon after the book came out, I was able to do uh, an interview with a Spanish newspaper. And the, the headline of the article was, when Franco was considered a good Muslim, uh, which was like <laughs> a, a little bit, not, not exactly what, what what I was trying to say, but what they were getting at there is that... This moment in the history of the Franco regime really is surprising to most people who associate the Franco regime with national Catholicism. Mm -hmm. By national Catholicism, I mean the alignment, the ideological alignment of the Spanish church and the Franco regime. And that idea of, of Franco and his regime being major defenders of Spain's Catholic identity, its identity as a Catholic nation, mm-hmm. is so baked into how we think about the Franco regime right now. It's like one of the, if you know anything about the Franco regime, it's usually one of the first things that people say. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that national Catholicism wasn't a thing or that Franco wasn't uh, actively uh, cultivating alliances with the Spanish church. What I'm saying is that at the same time, and it's paradoxical and it's surprising, but it's true, at the same time, Franco was uh, engaged in this really massive propaganda effort to present the the Franco regime as friends of Islam, as friends of the Muslim world. Perhaps the most um, significant indicator of this is that Franco was both a really uh, active builder of mosques Uh, In northern Morocco, and was also a huge uh, financial backer of the Moroccan pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina, the Hajj. Um, And so for about 20 years, uh, starting in the Spanish Civil War, and into the 1950s, Franco would every year pay for hundreds of Moroccans to go on the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina, and then on their way back to do a second pilgrimage to Spain, where they would visit the Islamic heritage sites of Al-Andalus. He would bring them to Granada, he'd bring them to Cordoba, they would pray in the mosque of Cordoba, they would go to Seville. And in these very public acts, which, which were huge, you know, huge processions of Moroccan pilgrims going through the streets of Southern Spain, Franco would present himself as a friend of not only those Muslims, but of the Islamic heritage in Spain. Um, And so, you know, Franco was very savvy at using religion, not shying away from it, but actually leaning into this idea that there is a natural alliance between Spanish Catholics and Moroccan Muslims who are joined in monotheism and have this shared connection to the Andalusi heritage. During the Franco uh, period, Uh, It was a very common practice when Muslim dignitaries came to visit Spain, Franco would bring them to the mosque of Cordoba and ask them to pray as part of the kind of the evidence of his support of Spain's Islamic heritage. And so this aspect of the story, I think, is one that's gotten less attention and it kind of, it, it doesn't do away with the story of national Catholicism, but it complicates it by saying that at the same time, Franco had this very different orientation to the Muslim world.
0: I was also... I wanted to ask you about another element of this argument and um, this is the way in which Franco's approach contrasted from what the French uh, were doing in, in French Morocco.
1: Yeah. All right. So I should clarify first that uh, from 1912 to uh, 1956, Morocco was divided into two territories, a Spanish protectorate and a French protectorate. A vast majority of uh, the scholarship on Moroccan colonial history is on the French protectorate zone for a variety of reasons that I can go into. But the the claim that my book is is making is not just we should study the Spanish protectorate because it's interesting, but actually because the Spanish protectorate um, introduced ways of talking about Al-Andalus that have actually become really instrumental throughout Morocco, including in the former French zone. And so throughout this protectorate period, 1912 to 1956, there's an ongoing competition between uh, the French and the Spanish about how they uh, justify their projects, how they uh, understand them within the long arc of Spanish and French history how they make the claim that they're the superior uh, colonizing force and how they reach out to Moroccans and I would say that this outreach uh, to the kind of Islamic dimension this outreach to Moroccan Muslims by the Franco regime is part of a much larger project of uh, trying to distinguish uh, Spanish colonialism from French colonialism uh, so the key the key thing to understand here is that um, there's a long-standing tradition in, 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 in French colonial culture, and in Morocco, this really takes off mostly in 1930 to try to divide between Moroccan uh, Berbers and Moroccan Arabs, which are kind of two major ethnic groups in, in Morocco. And the French protector tried to create two different jurisdictions, two different legal distinctions, um, with the claim that Berbers weren't actually as attached to Islam as Arabs were. So this was part of a kind of longstanding French effort to claim that Berbers were really culturally closer to Europeans, not as attached to Islam as their Arab counterparts. And Franco, what he did, I I mean, before Franco, but really starting mostly in the Franco regime, this was seen as like a, a major effort to kind of intervene and say, look, Moroccans, the French are trying to divide you along ethnic lines. We, the Spanish, believe in the cultural and religious unity of Morocco. So we are defenders of Morocco's Islamic identity. And so Franco positioned himself as a defender of Morocco's Islamic identity, in part, As uh, part, largely to make the distinction between the French and the Spanish, because he he said that the French were trying to divide Moroccans along ethnic lines, and a lot of Moroccan nationalists—I mean, this is a a kind of one of the foundational moments of the Moroccan nationalist movement—saw the French Berber policy as an effort to divide Moroccan Muslims and did see it as an affront to Morocco's Islamic identity, and so they were very receptive to this this message from the Spanish colonial authorities.
0: You argue in your book that even though the rhetoric on the part of the Franco regime was meant to reinforce this Spanish control over its colony, it actually wound up being taken up by the Moroccan nationalist movement. So how did this happen? Um, what did they borrow from the Spanish, so to speak? Well,
1: it's a, it's a really, in some ways, it's a surprising outcome, and in some, some ways it isn't. I mean, I think in some ways, the Franco regime was the victim of its own success because the Franco regime had really actively, uh, at very least countenanced, and some might even say cultivated, the Moroccan nationalist movement by legalizing parties, by funding newspapers, and trying to position itself in alliance with the Moroccan nationalists and opposed to the French. And the natural result of this is that the Moroccan nationalists rose to power and eventually were able to get independence in the 1950s. And so that's kind of one way of telling the story. But beyond the kind of political machinations and the kind of creation of a variety of different political parties and newspapers, there's a larger cultural narrative that the Moroccan nationalist movement very much internalizes, adapts. It doesn't, they don't translate it wholesale, but takes from from Spanish colonial culture and brings into the Moroccan mainstream. And this is this idea of Morocco's Andalusi heritage and the centrality of Andalus to modern Moroccan culture. Um, So one of the things about nationalist movement anywhere is that they have to define the nation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to figure, like, if you're advocating for a Moroccan nation, you have to say, what is that, that thing? Um, and so in the 1930s and 1940s, there's this increasing emphasis on trying to define Moroccanness, cultural Moroccanness, trying to define what Moroccan literature is, what Moroccan art is, what it means uh, to, to be a Moroccan. And a lot of the people driving this debate are people who came up through the ranks of the Spanish educational uh, system and Spanish colonial institutions. And very often were working in close collaboration with Spanish colonial authorities. And so this is a moment in which Moroccans start to translate this idea of Morocco as an extension of Al-Andalus. And not only that, but to kind of adopt this, what I would dec- describe as the nationalized cultural narrative of Al-Andalus, that uh, in this period, El Andalus becomes something akin to a Moroccan national style. So no longer, it, no longer is it a kind of symbol of the conflict between Islam and Christianity. Instead, it becomes a particularly Moroccan way of continuing the artistic and cultural practices that emerged in the medieval period and were brought over to North Africa and, and kind of preserved until the present day. And so this narrative of migration and preservation and the kind of embodiment of Andalus through a series of cultural practices, architecture, music, and so on. And I should say like the Spanish colonial authorities did a lot to promote what they called Morocco's Andalusi arts. These arts that were the object of a lot of colonial revival went on to become kind of pillars of what Moroccan national culture looks like in the 1950s and 1960s. And indeed, a lot of these same figures who were uh, educated by the Spanish, brought up through a lot of Spanish colonial institutions, went on to play, very uh, many of them went on to play leading roles in post-independence Morocco. Uh, particularly in the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Culture, and the National Library. So the kind of intellectual figures who are establishing a dominant narrative of what Moroccan history is in the 1950s, many of them are not only influenced by, but actually directly the result of these colonial, Spanish colonial institutions that had promoted Morocco's Andalusi heritage. So it's that transfer of ideas that happens between the 1930s and 1950s that I try to trace in the second
0: half of the book. So I just have uh, one more question for you to conclude here. This imagined affinity between the colonizer and colonized, um, is that something that's unique to the Spanish and perhaps the Moroccan case? Or do you think that this perceived connection should change the way that we think about the relationship between colonizer and colonized more broadly?
1: Yeah. So I, I, I don't think that it's unique. And like one of the exciting things uh, that I've, you know, happened as I've gone around and talked about this book is that people start to be like, oh yeah, I see a similar case. And like, I've, I've seen similar analogous cases in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I do think that it that this particular case challenges the dominant understanding of what colonialism in North Africa and the Middle East looks like. Mm-hmm. I think that our understanding of that colonial moment is, has been very much dominated by what I would call the kind of Edward Said model of the total difference between East and West and the presumed superiority of West over East. And I would say that this, this case kind of complicates that because this is not, Spanish colonialism is not a colonialism predicated on difference. It is, as I said before, a colonialism predicated on similarity. You know, I, I don't have like an easy answer to that question, but that's the kind of open-ended question yeah. that, that the book probes at. Like, wh- what does it mean to understand the exercise of power through a discourse? Uh, what does it mean to dominate through similarity? What does it mean to exercise power through affinity? And I think that not only should this change our understanding of some of the ways in which colonial power operated, but I also think that it should change the lenses to which we understand Spanish discourses today. As I'm sure you know, as many of your listeners will know, the idea of convivencia, the idea of the coexistence of Muslims, Christians, and Jews in medieval Iberia has become a really significant thing in, in, in contemporary Spain. Like if you go on tours, uh, if you visit any of the major tourist sites in southern Spain, you're going to encounter this idea. And what part of what I'm arguing at is that that idea, that celebration of affinity, celebration of coexistence, has a really complicated history. It's, it's an idea that can be mobilized to celebrate interfaith tolerance, but it also has very recently been mobilized to justify colonial power. And we need to come up with a way of understanding that idea of Spanish history that takes into account that complexity both its use for good and its use for, if not evil, at very least projects that we're not gonna very easily want to associate ourselves, such as Spanish colonialism under the Franco regime. And so I think that's, that's kind of the intervention I'm making is both changing the model of colonial power from one based on difference to one based on similarity and changing how we understand this discourse of Andalusi tolerance and understanding that Actually, that very discourse, which we today think to be a kind of symbol of a certain kind of multicultural position that we understand to be against the the legacy of the Franco regime was, in fact, part and parcel of the culture of the Franco regime. Mm -hmm. And we need to take into account that, that history.
0: Great. Well, I want to thank you, Eric, for coming on the program. This has been a fascinating conversation that I think has challenged a lot of our assumptions about many different areas uh, of modern history.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be on.
0: You have also done a couple of other uh, podcasts and a few newspaper pieces as well. So we're going to post links to those on the webpage for this episode. So if you would like to learn more, you can do it there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.